welcome to Secrutiny's Magnify Cybersecurity Podcast and our Immersion Trends series with industry expert Shane Shook. Today we'll look into how attackers are purchasing commodity access to target victim estates to focus their crimes on functions of the target and how vendors are shifting from passive defences to offer more active defences. Welcome Shane, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. When we last got up, we discussed insider threats, ransomware extortion, and so forth. So since then, what emerging trends and significant risks have you been seeing? Well, the most significant is the scale and the scope of ransomware, human-operated ransomware especially, that has just exploded in the past two or three months, particularly in the U.S., on major industries that facilitate most of our supply chains, whether it be for food, health, or energy. I'm sure everyone is familiar with the news about the Colonial Pipeline ransomware activity and probably recently about the JBS meatpacking plant. But there have been others as well that have significantly impacted, at least in the U.S., the ability to move key goods and services across large segments of the United States. And we anticipate seeing very similar actions taking place, at least in Western Europe. These activities are believed to have been originated from actors operating out of Russia or Eastern European countries, although there's no evidence to support it as yet beyond some indicators related to certain malware configurations and some communications. So they might as easily have been the attacks originated from Pan-Asian countries or even the Americas themselves. But the targeting and the impact felt from the targeting has been against so far the U.S. And we anticipate seeing it also occurring in Western European countries very soon in a similar fashion with attacks that will disrupt major supply chain provisioning for products and services. Coincidentally, we've seen just in the past month, similar attacks taking place in Japan and disrupting significant technology, product and services industry supply chains as well. So that's been the most significant thing. The open question is whether those are targets of intent or are targets of opportunity that unfortunately exposed a major weakness in the reliance of these large supply chains on internet communications infrastructure and their exposure of their functional utilities for supply chain management and distribution to the internet. The belief is split at the moment somewhat evenly between those who think it's targets of intent to exploit deliberately those supply chain providers versus others that believe that they're simply targets of opportunity that mass scanners may have stumbled across and in the process of exploiting those targets for their extortion demands, unfortunately had unintended consequences that those initially unintended consequences now are being followed up by intentional targeting on similar institutions. So it's a shift in the targeting, a shift in the outcomes, and it's actually driving some significant shifts in perception of governments, particularly in the U.S. and even in Russia and some of the Eastern European countries that are impacted, 
that are causing some similar policy questions to be addressed at nation state levels. So it's moving beyond the relatively simple confines of jurisdictions and law enforcement with regard to uh, intrusion or computer misuse or theft and abuse of property and extortion, actually into national security policy issues because the impact or the outcome on these significant supply chains. With that in mind, what would you suggest organizations do to protect themselves and what are the challenges? There are essentially two types of targeting that do occur. On the opportunistic, you know, there's always going to be scanning. There's always going to be people scanning for accessible ports and services and identifying targets of opportunity and then testing available single day or known vulnerability exploits that they have in their inventory and perhaps some zero days. Although zero days, for the most part, fall today in the category of targets of intent. And those targets of intent actually are mostly being either deliberately exploited by competitive interests of industry or nation state with uh, structured organizations that will leverage zero days, or they're being cataloged by what are called access brokers on the dark web and third-party competitive interests, which again are either industry competitive interests or nation state uh, organizations' interests will purchase on subscription the access through those access brokers and then leverage the tools and the access provisioned by that broker in order to facilitate their actions. And so, with the targets of intent, a competitive interest really doesn't need to be technically sophisticated. They can go to these access brokers on the dark web, just as they could over the last 15 years with banker botnets or other intellectual property theft botnet catalog operators. But with the ransomware as a service, particularly in these affiliate programs that they operate, they can go to these access brokers and select their interest, whether it's to interrupt the business at scale or to interfere with their financial service or to interfere with their client services or their production assembly capabilities and select their target interest and even the tools that they choose to leverage, whether it be you know, one type of ransom or another or a wiper. All of that's available now through subscription access and much of it's available on an outcome basis through profit sharing in these affiliate programs. Then you've got the warlords that, whether they're competitive interests of criminal syndicates, industry competition, or nation state, we characterize them as warlords in this ecosystem. They're going to leverage the access and the tools available from the weapons dealers. And then you've got your more simple thieves or kidnappers, if you will, who are opportunistically leveraging that access for more immediate gain through simple extortion tactics. But that composite of those three different entities makes it difficult for law enforcement and the intelligence community to really distinguish what the intent of the action is. When it comes to the defense, what can organizations do? Then what organizations have to do is think about their functional needs for cyber defense. I think on recent podcasts and certainly on the training that I've been doing for the SASIG Academy, as well as customer training, I talk about the needs for active and passive defenses and sort of the span of control in between. 
And passive defenses are things that after the fact you identify and you build active controls from logged information from, for example, detect and respond technologies to combat future uses of those similar tactics and procedures. Whereas active defenses are interruptive, they intentionally create obstacles to the activities to be performed. A classic example is tools like Silence or CrowdStrike, where Silence is interrupting process execution of a malicious software or script. And so by interrupting, it interdicts the process that the actor is taking to compromise an environment. Versus CrowdStrike, for example, or Sentinel One or others as EDR, they're necessarily dependent on an action having been performed previously and those activities being logged and determined to be malicious so that corrective actions and signatures can be produced to prevent a recurrence of that action in the future. So similarly, technologies like firewalls or multi-factor authentication are preventative controls, whereas things like NDR, network detect and response, and UEBA, user entity behavior analysis, those are passive defenses as detective and corrective response tools. The thing that organizations need to do is in order to have effective passive defenses, you've got to understand what the objectives are from past events. And that requires intelligence from how are these actions being committed against your peers in industry? What is the objective of the attackers? So that you can put corrective controls and move from a passive defense into an active defense. So for example, in SIEM and NDR or EDR, detecting certain ports or protocols or even addresses that are intent on interrupting the financial processing capability of an organization or the logistics control of a supply chain or something from industry intelligence of similar activities, you can take those indicators and put them into an active defense like firewall policies, thereby preventing those specific tactics and tools from being utilized against your environment. But on an active defense, it's really crucial to choose the right tools for the weaknesses or vulnerabilities that the functions of the organization offer the variety of competitive interests. So for example, in an active defensive posture, if you consider the functions of an organization like legal, fundamentally legal is managing information, customer, partner, corporate information. And so they're going to be the target of theft or manipulation or corruption of information. Accordingly, then, as an active defense, the most important technology to implement for a defensive control isn't an EDR. That's a useful and necessary secondary defense for a passive capability. But for the active defense to prevent at scale the types of interests in their function, DLP and data rights management or DRM are more important because they'll address the target of actions on the function of the business. And then similarly in finance, again, 
EDR is a necessary and useful passive defense for finance, but nobody wants to wait for funds to have been stolen to then try to implement some type of control based on past events. So accordingly, the more important active defense for the finance function of any organization is actually because the operators of that function are dealing with third-party systems and dealing with controlled access to first-party systems that they operate, multi-factor authentication and step-up authentication are the most important active defense to that function. In customer service, the controlled access to web services because of the reliance on third-party web services like Salesforce or other things, as well as information largely stored and operated through cloud services, means that CASB is the most important functional active defense for customer service. And then the really interesting outlier that many corporate security defense architectures overlook is the executive function. So the executive function, first of all, you have to realize that executives use their mobile devices much more like 90% of their technical reliance on infrastructure is through mobile devices. So EDR is a useful secondary capability for detecting anomalies, but the fundamental active defense to protect the executive function of an organization is going to be an MDM type of solution. So these primary active defenses depend on the functions and the activities that those functions perform, which is those activities that are being targeted by these actor groups. And when we talk about ransomware, particularly in human-operated incidents, is directed against activities that will disrupt an intended function that they're targeting, whether that be finance or customer service or executive or infrastructure support. And they're attempting to disrupt that either for business interruption purposes that they can extort then a time-sensitive issue or information, whether it be customer or courts or regulatory or financial that they can extort the access to or the release of in the public that might then embarrass the company. So active defense is a necessary component as is a passive defense, but it takes a different perspective to come up with the right tools and processes and actually training and awareness to implement active defenses that have meaning to the functions of the organization. So both active and passive are needed, but the needs for both are different according to the function and sector of the organization. There's not great interoperability or complementary skills from the product and services and active defenses are better understood and demanded by business unit function leaders than passive defenses demanded by IT. That's an important realization. So Passive defenses are managed in shared services most commonly under the auspices of information technology, either through the group CTO, CIO of the organization, or the CISO, depending on industry and organizational structure. And passive defenses are a horizontal application. If you consider firewalls and SIEM and SOAR and antivirus, they're horizontal, or I like to call them peanut butter applications that get spread across the whole organization. But active defense is really, as I was just describing, 
have to be focused on the business function and the risks according to the actions that that business function performs to create revenue or protect revenue and related information for an organization. And so accordingly, active defenses are under the control and really have to be brought into the understanding of the functional unit business leader. So it means actually impressing on the finance officer the need and the utility and the practical requirement for multi-factor authentication. Yes, it's a pain for financial people to have to use a step-up authentication, but they have to be brought to understand that if they don't do that, then there may not be an organization for them to be responsible for the finances of. Similarly with legal, yes, document signing and step-up authentication of access to protected information under each individual lawyer's concerns and control is an additional task that can be painful. It doesn't necessarily need to be, but it can be painful. But again, they need merely to look at the variety of intrusions into law firms and intrusions into companies where protected legal information has been released to embarrass or actually cause problems for organizations to understand the absolute imperative for utilizing a DLP or a DRM. And similarly, then the CIO or the CISO and vendors in the security community need to understand to whom they're selling these services and how to address differently to build comprehension and buy-in between the passive defenses sells and utility to the shared services infrastructure like EDR, SEAMS, or firewalls versus the functional unit requirements and how to talk with a data protection officer or a financial officer or a chief legal officer or the head of customer support in those respective business units to build their comprehension of the imperative for the tools that will ensure the safety and security of the function that they're responsible for in the business. Thank you, Shane, for adding that on. Is there anything else our audience must be aware of before we sign off? As I say, I just go back to the beginning. We've seen in recent months the shift, I think, initially accidentally against supply chains that have caused mass disruptions in the U.S. And subsequently, we've seen more directly targeted or targets of intent against supply chain providers to cause similar mass interruptions for extortion purposes, at least in the U.S. and now in Japan. The audience really needs to be aware that we do expect that similar actions will occur in at least Western Europe. And so I'd really encourage the audience to consider the partnerships or supply chains and importantly, consider the defensive capabilities that they have to combat intrusion, theft of protected information, and response to extortion demands. Ransomware doesn't have to be a bogeyman. Ransomware can be combated. Step-up authentication to local services will, through what's called privileged access management, through tools like Remediant, for example, or even CyberArk, will prevent the lateral movement at least the automated lateral movement that opportunistic attackers necessarily rely upon. Network segmentation through software like airgap.io 
to limit cross-functional network access between endpoints and users is, again, another interruptive active defense that will prevent the lateral movement that is fundamental to the success of ransomware and extortion, and indeed, APT intent on business interruption or intellectual property theft. Yeah, so PAM, network access control and segmentation, which, by the way, you can also do with even Active Directory policies. And then, of course, data leakage prevention, although that's a bit more difficult to quickly implement than PAM or NAC is important. And then fundamentally, of course, what uh, DRM and DLP will do is if data is stolen, it'll make it unusable so that it really doesn't matter if data is stolen or locked up. You've then, on the latter, got the capability to restore data. So that brings the final point that test your backups. Make sure you're actually doing backups. Don't leave them exposed to have cold backups. Don't leave them exposed to also being locked up and extorted. But the two things with data protection are, number one, use a DRM or DLP capability like a secure circle, for example, to prevent the loss of data or in the event of data loss to make it irrelevant. And then secondarily, through cold store backups that are tested for accuracy, make your restoration of data possible. But the best thing overall is to implement PAM and network segmentation and access control so that lateral movement can't occur and you can detect with alerts then when attempts are being made for it. Thank you, Shane. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And thank you, everybody else, for tuning in. More information regarding the subject can be found on our website at www.scrutiny.com. If you have any questions or concerns of any of the topics discussed, please get in touch and check back in September for our next Immersion Trends episode as we catch up with Shane.